the DC Debrief for Friday, June 30th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up on the Debrief, a busy week for the Supreme Court with major decisions on religious rights, affirmative action in colleges, and the independence of state legislatures and gerrymandering and elections. Also, the president hits the road to sell Bidenomics, more Hunter Biden revelations. I'll have a conversation with CBN News White House correspondent Abigail Robertson on last week's Faith and Freedom Coalition event in which numerous Republican presidential candidates were there, and also a conversation with former Ambassador William Courtney on the latest in Russia. But just a reminder, everyone, if you haven't done so yet, tell a friend or a family member about the DC Debrief. And we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, pretty much wherever you can get your podcasts. So uh, if you do use Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating and a review. If you get a chance, that will help the podcast grow and help other folks find it. All right, with that out of the way, let's get to this week's Debrief. Up first, affirmative action in the Supreme Court. They ruled that race cannot be a determining factor in admissions in schools. It was a 6-3 decision. Uh, It was conservatives versus the liberals in this particular case. Uh, These were cases brought against the University of North Carolina and Harvard. And this is a seismic shift in terms of college admissions. And it could also affect other areas where affirmative action is practiced. At the very least, it could spur on future lawsuits that get that come to the court, and then this case could be used as a precedent. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion with the justices ruling that the practice of affirmative action in college admissions violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Roberts said that for too long, universities have, quote, concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. He also went on to say that the court says it has, quote, permitted race-based admissions only within the confines of narrow restrictions. University programs must comply with strict scrutiny. They may never use race as a stereotype or negative, and at some point, they must end. The Harvard and University of North Carolina programs, Roberts writes, was well-intentioned and implemented in good faith. However, Roberts writes, they failed in the criteria he mentioned previously. Now, the court considered these two cases together essentially as one case. Uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor uh, wrote one of the dissents and said the decision, quote, quote, rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. And she said, in so holding this decision, the court cements a superficial rule of colorblindness as a constitutional principle in an endemically segregated society. Now, liberals are panning this decision, of course, and President Biden commented on the ruling in a news conference a few hours after the ruling was handed down. We all know it. Discrimination still exists in America. Discrimination still exists in America. Discrimination still exists in America. Today's decision does not change that. It's a simple fact. If a student has, has overcome, had to overcome adversity, on their path to education. College should recognize and value that. And Steve Kornacki tweeted a post, a Washington Post SCAR school poll from October of last year asking the question, 
Do you favor or oppose the Supreme Court banning colleges and universities from considering race and ethnicity in admissions? And and the results may surprise you. 63% of all Americans favored banning affirmative action in colleges. 36% of Americans were opposed to it. 66% of white Americans were in favor of banning affirmative action in college admissions. 34% opposed it. 47% of blacks favored Uh, getting rid of affirmative action in college admissions, 53% opposed, 60% 60 of Hispanics favored getting rid of affirmative affirmative action, 4 in 10 opposed, and it was 65% of of Asians who were in favor of getting rid of it, 35% opposing. But I think the, the number to look at there is the number of all Americans in October of last year who were in favor of getting rid of affirmative action in school choice. It was a a little less than uh, two thirds of all Americans believe that the Supreme court made the right decision. Now, obviously, you know, it's been nine months since that poll was taken. Maybe the, the mood of America has shifted significantly, but at least as of the fall of last year, it seems as though the Supreme court is kind of where the American people are on this particular issue. If you, believe in the polling. Another important case decided by the Supreme Court this week, a religious freedom case in which the court on Thursday sided with an evangelical Christian who was denied requests to take Sundays off to observe his Sabbath. Now, it was a narrow narrow ruling in this particular case. Some religious freedom advocates wanted this to be kind of a blanket statement on religious freedom when when it comes to work. The court has decided it was this is centering on a former U.S. Postal Service worker named Gerald Groff, who we have featured on CBN News. We've been doing a lot on this story over the last uh, few few months. He wanted to take Sundays off to go to church and to rest in order to observe a Sabbath day, which, of course, is one of the Ten Commandments. And that presented a scheduling conflict. And the Postal Service said it was a burden on his colleagues. That was the argument from the Postal Service and the government especially after the Postal Service started delivering Amazon packages on Sundays. Now, the court's decision on this was unanimous. It was written by Justice Samuel Alito, but every member of the court believed, uh, agreed with Groff's attorneys. Groff's attorneys had asked the Supreme Court to throw out a precedent from 1977 that made it easier for some companies to deny these kinds of requests. The court instead decided to send a signal to the lower courts to interpret that 46-year-old precedent as being more generous to employees. So uh, essentially what what they're going to what the court is saying here is that employers have to show that a request like this from someone like Gerald Groff that it, they have to prove that this request causes extreme duress it it like that it's it's really putting this organization or this company out that it's not just a a minimal disruption it's not going to cause a, a a minimal problem that it, it has to cause it has to be a, a a pretty big deal for and i don't know exactly what it doesn't they didn't really make clear exactly what the parameters are for that but essentially what they're saying is that for the u.s postal service in this case this gentleman wanting Sunday off was was not going to create a big enough disruption for them, would not cost them the kind of money, would not be as big a, a problem for them, certainly not, not enough to deny this request. Now, it could also affect other situations where religion and workplace rules 
are in conflict with each other. Um, this could have you could be roping in something like religious dress. Uh, some are worried that the case could also affect religious conduct at work, which would mean giving employees more leeway to exercise their personal views, even if they were inconsistent with those held by their employers or colleagues. So um, th- this was a ruling that religious rights advocates wanted to see more broadly applied. In this case, the Supreme Court really is just kind of looking at the effect that a request like this has on a particular business or entity. And they're basically telling lower courts when they look at cases like this, that they should not be looking at a minimum standard of disruption, that it has to be a more a, a larger standard of disruption. Uh, so that was the that was the Groff case um, that uh, that the Supreme Court again unanimously ruled in favor of this Christian U.S. Postal Service employee. Uh, they the third case of note that came down this week was a North Carolina elections case. And the Supreme Court ruled that North Carolina's top court, the state Supreme Court, did not overstep its bounds when it struck down a congressional districting plan that they said was excessively partisan under state law. This uh, this decision came out on Tuesday, and it rejected an argument by conservatives that would have uh, left state legislatures basically unchecked by their state courts when dealing with federal elections. What Republicans in the state had said was, this is our job. It is up to us to decide how elections are run. It is up to us and us alone to decide how congressional maps are drawn. They argued that the state constitution gives them that right and that state courts have no right to come in and overrule what it is they what what it is they decide. And so what we see here is that the Supreme Court, and again, a surprise ruling because you had some conservative members of the court going along with the liberals in this six to three decision saying that they were not going to invoke, and it would have been the first time this was invoked, the independent state legislature theory, which would essentially leave state legislatures unchecked by state courts when dealing with federal elections. Now, the high court did suggest there could be limits on state courts' efforts to police elections for Congress and for the presidency of the United States. And of course, this this is um, pretty important given what happened on January 6th a, few, a couple of years ago. But when it, the brass tacks here is that this doesn't really affect anything in North Carolina per se because the North Carolina Supreme Court under a new Republican majority already had undone its redistricting ruling uh, previously. But um, Evan Kamiker is a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. He filed the brief for the North Carolina state justices in the Supreme Court elections case, and he praised the Supreme Court's six to three decision. This was a major decision, a bipartisan decision. Uh, Frankly, democracy dodged a bullet today. Mm -hmm. The theory that was propounded here is that state legislatures and legislatures only get to decide all of the rules about how to structure elections for congressional offices and by inference also how to choose presidential electors in presidential races. What the court held clearly is that state constitutions can put boundaries on what state legislatures can do. So in this case, basically, what they held was if a state constitution prohibits partisan gerrymandering of districts, for example, 
well, then the state legislature has to live with those state constitutional rules. However, Hans von Spakovsky, senior fellow at the Conservative Heritage Foundation, disagreed with the contention that the state's constitution says that at all. Look, there's no question that state legislatures don't have a completely open hand when they're doing redistricting. Congress can overrule what they do. They're also subject to federal laws like the Voting Rights Act. But the exact situation in this case was that the North Carolina uh, State Supreme Court overruled and threw out the redistricting plan when they had no legal authority to do it. They claimed that partisan gerrymandering violated the state constitution. There's nothing in the state constitution that says anything or puts any restrictions on partisan gerrymandering. Chief Justice Roberts, Amy Comey Barrett, and Brett Kavanaugh joined the three liberal justices in the majority opinion. Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch all dissented. Now, there's another redistricting case from Ohio pending, and if the justices want to say more about the issue before next year's elections, they'll have the opportunity to do that. But as you heard, this ruling also restricts a state legislature's ability to send secondary electors to Congress to certify election results. Again, obviously noteworthy given what happened after the 2020 election. So uh, those are three big cases the Supreme Court decided this week. There is one more day in its term, Chief Justice Roberts announced on Thursday. And there are a couple of cases, three cases in particular, uh, that that they will make a decision on. We think uh, probably either by the time you've heard this podcast or if you catch this early in the morning, hours after um, hours after you, you hear this podcast. And one of them is a religious freedom case, 303 Creative LLC v. LNS, or LNS, it's the Colorado graphic designer case in which a uh, graphic designer in Colorado uh, did not want to design a wedding website for a same-sex couple. And so this would, um, she filed suit, uh, arguing that Colorado's anti-discrimination law violates her first amendment right to free speech. So that case will likely come down, uh, later today, or by the time you've already heard this, uh, another one will be the, um, actually, and it'll be essentially, uh, two cases, both dealing with, uh, student loans, Biden v. Nebraska. And this uh, at stake here is whether six states have standing to challenge the Department of Education student debt relief plan in which um, the, the Biden administration would forgive the debt of thousands of Americans. Um, and it would also take a look at whether the plan exceeds the Secretary of Education's authority. Um, then you also have the Department of Education v. Brown, and this will go towards whether two student loan borrowers have the standing to challenge the Department of Education's student debt relief plan. So the guess is that, like they did with the affirmative action case, the justices will kind of combine these two cases together and rule on whether or not President Biden's student loan forgiveness program is actually constitutional. We'll see whether the 6-3 to conservative majority sides with conservatives who believe that it should be overturned that the Biden administration did overstep their bounds. But the Supreme Court has delivered a couple of surprises, especially when it comes to gerrymandering and uh, state election laws. And so uh, it's no slam dunk anymore what the Supreme Court is going to do. All right. Number two. Biden promotes more high-speed internet. The president on Monday introduced a plan aimed at making sure every home in America that wants it has access to high-speed internet. We're announcing over $40 billion to be distributed to 50 states, Washington, D.C., and territories to deliver high-speed internet in places where there's neither service or it's too slow. 
and spokes, and that includes rural communities like Appalachia, towns that Joe represents. It includes tribal lands from Alaska to the Dakotas, coastal towns from Hawaii to the Pacific Northwest. It also includes suburban communities, even cities, neighborhoods, and uh, where there's a lot of feature you think is automatic, where some still have to use dial-up connections to get online. With this funding, along with other federal investments, we're going to be able to connect every person in America to reliable, high-speed internet by 2030. High-speed internet is vital to life in America now. I mean, you really can't live with a dial-up modem, and there are many places in this country, rural places in America, where having high-speed internet access is critical. And this is one of those lifestyle things that is important, that, that people, many, maybe there are some of you listening to this podcast who are not able to get high-speed internet in your home. And this is something that the president says he wants to do because he thinks this is a, a vital thing for, for all Americans really to live and survive and thrive in this modern technological age that we are in. He compared it to what President Frank, Franklin Delano Roosevelt did when he brought electricity to nearly every American home and farm in our nation in the 1930s. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said this week they believe they'll have it done by the end of the decade. Every day, more Americans will be brought online. There's eight and a half million American households without the internet now. So to connect everyone in every nook and cranny will take, you know, five, six, seven years. And that's about 7% of the country that does not have high-speed internet right now. This will cost about $42 billion. This is money that has already been allotted by Congress through the infrastructure law that was passed, the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed by both parties. Each state will get at least $107 million. 19 states will get at least a billion dollars. The state of Texas will get $3.3 billion for this project. Number three. Bidenomics. The president hit the road this week in what are not official campaign stops, but he's using the bully pulpit of the White House to promote his agenda and the things that he feels he has accomplished in his first term to warrant a second term. And the White House is undergoing a major push to promote Bidenomics. It's a phrase that was once used to criticize his economic policies. Now he's taken it and he's using it to promote them. Things like the bipartisan infrastructure law, legislation that encouraged microchip production, the Inflation Reduction Act, like we just talked about with high-speed internet, a focus on rebuilding the middle class, supporting unions. It's rooted in what we've always worked best at in this country, investing in America, investing in Americans. Because when we invest in our people, we strengthen the middle class, we see the economy grow, that benefits all Americans. The president delivered this uh, delivered this message in a friendly location in Chicago. Now, the sell job that he has to do to convince the American people that the economy under his leadership is working, there's some work to do there. And it's fair to wonder if Biden has the ability to sell it. The latest Quinnipiac University poll found just 38 percent of Americans approve of how Biden is handling the economy. Fifty seven percent disapprove. A new Associated Press poll has the number at 32% approval. That's six points lower than the Quinnipiac poll. The Washington Post notes that Obama faced a similarly bad polling scenario back in June of 2011, the year before he won re-election, when 36% of Americans approved of how he was handling the economy, about the same as Biden. The difference could be Obama's ability to hit the campaign trail 
use the bully pulpit from the White House and sell his accomplishments as a much better orator than Joe Biden. Back in the old days, Joe Biden could certainly get up there and he could knock your socks off with a speech. But Obama, his oratory skills really are second to none in terms of presidencies. And he was able to sell enough of the American people on his economic policies to to get reelected. And in this particular case, Chicago is a Biden stronghold. He's preaching to the choir here. Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna noted that Obama and Bill Clinton were Democrats who went into smaller communities in purple and red areas and were able to convince independents of their accomplishments. Joe Biden has to prove that he can do that as well. Now, he can point to some numbers. Inflation has been improving. It was 4% year over year in May. That was better than the 4.9% in April. And it's way better than the 9.1% mark of June of 2022, and the Fed chose not to raise interest rates for the first time in months in June. Unemployment rates remain at near historic lows and wages are stable in some industries they are growing. That said, conservatives note the price of food and other goods are still stubbornly high, and there is still a chance for a recession if the Federal Reserve can't get that inflation number down to 2%. You could see more rate hikes. You've also got these issues with bank solvency. Bank, uh, you know, these these bank failures in in recent weeks are kind of spooking the market a little bit, a little bit. So we will see over these next few weeks and months how good a salesman Joe Biden is on Bidenomics. Number four, the Trump audio tape. This is the tape we've heard so much about, everybody, the transcript of which had been released as part of the Mar-a-Lago classified document indictment. It has now been made public in the clip. Trump can be heard talking to someone about a paper he's holding in his hand regarding plans to attack Iran. And this is a longer audio bite, but I wanted to give you the whole thing here so you could hear it in its full context. Bad, sick people. That, was, that was your coup, you know, against you. That's well, it started it, right at the Like beginning. when Millie's talking about, oh, you were going to try to do a coup. No, they, they were trying right. to do that before you even were sworn in. That's right, no, trying yeah. to overthrow yeah. your election. Well, with Millie, uh, let me see that. I'll, I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. Wait a minute, let's see here. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Except it is like highly confidential, secret. This is secret information. Look look at this. You attack. and Hillary would print that out all the time, you know. <laughs> she'd send it, no, she'd send it to yeah. Anthony Weiner. Yeah, yeah. The pervert. Um, by the way, isn't that incredible? Yeah. I was just saying, because we were talking about it. And you know, he said, he wanted to attack Iran and what? He said, the papers. Wow. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably. Yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a, a, yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified yeah. it. Now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classified. Yeah, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, it's so, I'm, look, we, her and I have a, 
And you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe It's you. incredible, right? No, they, hey, bring they some, uh, bring some Cokes in, please. So what you heard there was Trump and a couple of staffers or allies of some kind planning a response to some criticism that former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley had been leveling against him in the press, apparently about Trump wanting to go to war with Iran, criticisms of his foreign policy, things of that nature. And the indictment alleges Trump pulled out this document as proof that it was Milley who wanted to attack Iran. But as you hear on the tape, Trump appears to understand the paper he's holding and showing to people is classified and would need to be declassified in order for them to be able to use it in response to this criticism that he was receiving from General Milley. At a campaign stop in New Hampshire, Trump responded to the recording with reporters. You're not concerned then with your own voice on those on those recordings? My own voice was fine. What did I say wrong on those recordings? I didn't even see the recording. All I know is I did nothing wrong. We had a lot of papers, a lot of papers stacked up. In fact, you could hear the rustle of the paper, and nobody said I did anything wrong other than the fake news, which of course is Fox, too. Are there any other recordings that we should be concerned of? Uh, I don't know of any recordings that you should be uh, concerned with because I don't do things wrong. I do things right. I'm a legitimate person. Now, all these legal troubles surrounding Trump do not seem to be hurting hurting him all that much, if at all, in the polls so far. I did a check of Real Clear Politics average going back to June 8th. They have him at 52 percent approval nationally. Uh, among national Republicans, 31 points ahead of Governor DeSantis at 21.5%. Mike Pence is at just under 6%, and Nikki Haley is at 3.5%. Now, if you look at some of the early states in Iowa, Trump leads DeSantis 46 to 25 on average, average, and in New Hampshire, it's 43 to 21. So he seems to have a, a really good hold on those two states if the most recent polling is to be believed. Number five. Hunter Biden IRS whistleblower speaks in an interview on CBS this week. An IRS whistleblower who has testified to Congress already said he and his investigative team were prevented from pursuing certain charges against Hunter Biden in their probe of his business dealings. If this was any other person, they likely would have already served their sentence. There were personal expenses that were taken as business expenses. Prostitutes, sex club memberships, hotel rooms for purported drug dealers. How much did Hunter Biden owe in taxes? So from 2014 to 2019, it was $2.2 million. There were certain investigative steps that we weren't allowed to take that could have led us to President Biden. And you wanted to take them? We needed to take them. And you weren't allowed to take them? That's correct. The IRS whistleblower's name is Gary Shapley. He also did an interview with Fox News, and he said the most, substant- the most substantive felony charges were left off the table and that the investigation was put on the back burner during the 2020 presidential election. He said, quote, we weren't allowed to ask questions about dad. We weren't allowed to ask about the big guy. We weren't allowed to include certain names in document requests and search warrants. So, you know, we were precluded from following that line of questioning. On Wednesday, Joe Biden was asked by a reporter about a series of text messages Hunter Biden allegedly sent a Chinese business partner in 2017. This is after Biden was out of office as vice president, in which Hunter Biden pressured that business leader to engage in a deal by saying, 
his father was sitting right next to him and that they would use the power of the family in order to to make life miserable for this for this business partner if he didn't acquiesce. This text exchange from Hunter Biden to this Chinese official was part of the testimony Shapley gave the House Oversight Committee, and it allegedly reads, quote, and this is supposed to be Hunter texting, I'm sitting here with my father, and we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. The message continues, tell the director that I would like to resolve this now before it gets out of hand, and now means tonight. The message goes on to say, I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction. I'm sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Now, I said Biden was asked about this on Wednesday. There's audio of it, but it's 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 almost impossible to, to understand what they're saying without the, you know, the closed captioning. So basically what he says, he's asked whether he was involved in the business dealings or was sitting with Hunter when this text message was sent and Biden told reporters Wednesday, no, I wasn't. He was asked it again and he said more forcefully, no. Chris Clark, a lawyer for Hunter Biden, said on Friday that the Justice Department had thoroughly investigated the case, including the time in which the message was sent to see if Hunter Biden and Joe Biden were in the same location, in the same place. And Chris Clark says, quote, the DOJ investigation covered a period which was a time of turmoil and addiction for my client. Any verifiable words or actions of my client in the midst of a horrible addiction are solely his own and have no connection to anyone in his family. That was a statement from Hunter Biden's attorney. So uh, he's saying that the, the Justice Department investigated whether or not these two men were in the same place at the same time because they know when this text was sent. So one would imagine that they would be able to track down the location of Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and where they were when this all happened. But obviously, this IRS whistleblower has a lot of things to say, and uh, we will be keeping track of any additional accusations and we'll be charting the investigation as well uh, as it moves through the House of Representatives. All right, now it's time for the first of two of our deep dives here on the DCD Brief. Last weekend, we had the Faith and Freedom Coalition's Road to Majority in Washington, D.C., and our own White House correspondent, Abigail Robertson, was in attendance talking to some of the attendees of that event, and she's here to talk to us a little bit about what she saw and how the different Republican candidates who spoke were received. Abby, thanks for coming on The Debrief. How are you? Great. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. It's always great to talk to you, too. And this is always one of the largest gatherings of political conservatives and faith leaders of the year. Essentially, every major Republican presidential candidate spoke at the gathering. Did you find that the crowd there reflected what we've been what we've been seeing in polling, that Donald Trump is the preferred candidate for 2024? So it was very interesting. This is the first campaign event I've attended so far where I have seen every declared GOP candidate for 2024 speak. So, and you know, honestly, as I prayed about the event the night before, um, I really, and I just asked the Lord how to kind of guide the coverage. I really felt like he told me just to pay attention to the crowd and um, to be talking to the people and just gauging their response to the candidates. So that's sort of what I went there to do. And it was interesting. The majority of the candidates, almost all of them spoke on Friday morning with Ron DeSantis being the last one to go. And he definitely, um, he seemed to have a little bit more time than the other candidates had as he's the person who's pulling the second highest after 
President Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, he um, keynoted the event Saturday night. He was just one of two candidates, I believe, to speak on Saturday. And uh, it apparently was by his request that he had mm-hmm. his own special time, not surprising. Yeah. And um, there was definitely a major energy in the room. He spoke for about an hour and a half. Most of the other candidates comparatively had about 15 minutes on the stage because this really is an event that sees many, many speakers, even outside presidential candidates. But um, yeah, it it was interesting. Governor Chris Christie was the only GOP candidate who um, sort of who called out Trump by name. And he spoke to why as a Christian, um, he believes that his faith is calling him to really take on Trump and some of the things that he believes President Trump has lied to the American people about and some of the things that he questions about Trump's character. He's going after that head on. And there were people booing him. It was interesting Mm. because there were people booing him in the crowd and yelling, you know, things about Trump. But then at the end, when he finished his thought, I also heard people clapping. So yeah. it was interesting because, you know, the, there were loud voices that were very much against what Christie was saying um, that were not supportive of Trump. But then there were definitely there was a, a contingency that was supporting him and um, egging on what he was saying about just the importance of having a good moral character and following, you know, what the Bible tells us to do. So it it was fascinating to me just to be in the room, to see how voters were reacting to each candidate. And um, they were definitely all, it was right around the anniversary of the Dobbs decision. Saturday was the anniversary of the Dobbs decision. So there was a lot of talk about um, abortion policy and where the candidates stand on that. Um, But it was, it was, it's, it's neat. They're, um, you know, it seems right now the polls would show that, I mean, Trump has a dominant lead. Ralph mm-hmm. Reed told me that, I mean, Ralph Reed has been in 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 politics for decades now. He, yeah. When he just starts talking and spitting off, he knows the ins and outs of, I mean, if, m- <laughs> multiple presidential yeah. races he's been on yeah. the forefront of. Um and so it was interesting to hear his perspective of saying how Trump is the most from he's in the strongest position he's ever seen any Republican candidate going into a into a primary. And Ralph Reed, of course, the founder and chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, uh, but certainly uh, goes back a long way towards, like you said, helping to build this evangelical coalition on the conservative side. Um, I do think it's interesting, and I didn't realize this, I didn't think about it until you just said something that that Trump was afforded an hour and a half to speak while the other candidates, even though, I mean, I were only given about 15 minutes each, mm-hmm. maybe some 20, some, and I wonder about that disparity because I do understand, you know, as, as the front runner, people and the former president, most people understand that Trump takes up most of the oxygen in the room anyway. So I think it's interesting that he got so much more time to speak than the other candidates did. It seems clear that at least the, uh, the, the people who put the event on we're giving Donald Trump more deference to to, to speak longer, and I, I just you know wonder what your thoughts on that are. So it, it's interesting, and I I honestly you know so I, I asked Ralph Reed. I don't think that time the time awarded to Trump should be seen as any kind of endorsement from the um, 
Faith and Freedom Coalition because, you know, I asked Ralph Reed and he said that they have a policy. They're not, they don't endorse in primaries. And he described sort of their role as the Faith and Freedom Coalition. He described he described themselves their job as matchmakers and not kingmakers. And they mm-hmm. want to provide events like this where evangelicals from all over the country come and they can hear all of the candidates and then decide for themselves who they want to get behind. But I do think you know, President Trump, he is a former president. So, um, you know, while I didn't ask when my interview with Ralph actually happened before Trump spoke, so I didn't yeah. at that point know he was going to <laughs> Sure, of course. Now. Yeah. But, you know, I also think we all know Trump. He's, <laughs> yes. I, I pity the person who would have to <laughs> just say, yeah, you can't talk for that long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think, you know, he's, he's a man who has shown multiple times he does sort of what he wants to do. Yes. Um, and, and I think because he does have, he was the former president. So that does carry clout. But yes. I think because of that, that's good. That's going to play to his advantage. This is not going to be the only event where all the candidates come through. And Trump is given not just the the prime time slot of his choosing, but mm-hmm. also allowed more leeway in the length of time he's able to speak to voters. I, I think that's going to be a theme. And I think that will honestly probably be a requirement for people who are trying to get him to come speak at their events. So yeah. I don't think it's the first time we're going to see that. No, probably not. And it's probably why a lot of these candidates want to get him on a debate stage where the rules yeah. are on, on the length of speaking um, are a little bit more closely guarded. Abortion, you mentioned, was a, was a major issue at this event. And one of the big stories coming out of the conference was the different ways in which each candidate approached that topic. Who were those in attendance that spoke most forcefully in defense of the Dobbs decision and pro-life issues? And which candidates do you think seemed to avoid the topic or tried to focus on other items and really put that off to the side? Well, I would say former Vice President Mike Pence is one who really came out forcefully saying that every candidate who's trying, who's vying for the GOP nomination should say explicitly that they support a 15-week federal abortion ban. Another person was Senator Tim Scott. He's, you know, has a very strong pro-life record, both as a congressman and as a senator. And there's been a lot of question, um, you, you know, there's been a lot of talk about former President Donald Trump, because he is, as president, who appointed the current, many of the current Supreme Court justices that played a crucial role in overturning Dobbs. Um, You know, he is, he has been labeled as one of the most pro-life politicians and presidents the country has ever seen. So we haven't really seen him um, come out and say where he would fall on a federal issue, but he is very much campaigning on on the fact that, you know, taking credit for overturning Dobbs. So it will be interesting to see as people press him, um, as he talks to reporters about the issue, if we do hear him sort of explicitly lay out what he would like to see in a federal abortion law as president. One of the other things that I think really came up during this was, you know, you did have different uh the different candidates who who re- referenced their faith and, and talked about their faith and, and their faith journeys. And um, I'm curious if, if there was anybody whose story resonated with the crowd in particular, um, any any candidate, I guess maybe even just in general, are there any candidates, maybe not on the top tier, but people who spoke that attendees seemed intrigued by or were talking about in the, in the hallways? So in this, you know, I, I admittedly, 
sampled a, a relatively small pool of people. Um, mm-hmm. It's always hard to get, <laughs> frankly, sure. it's, 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 it's hard at these events to get people to really talk to you about who they're voting for, what they're thinking. Um, but in even the ones off camera, I at least try and ask them to tell me what they're thinking. And um, of the people who were very outspoken, I did hear many say that, you know, Trump is their front runner. Another name I heard tossed around was, I'm going to, uh, John, you might have to help me with the pronunciation of the last name. Vivek R- R- Ramaswamy. Yes. <laughs> he was one people um, thought had good energy. And, um, but I would just say it, it's an interesting because this was a group of evangelical voters. And there are three candidates who I truly do believe, you know, have been open. And, and I truly do believe, um, feel like they were called by God to jump, jump in this race. And that would be, Mike Pence, Tim Scott, and Nikki Haley. And um, and so they obviously, you know, when they speak to crowds like this, it, their faith is is very obvious. It's, it's not just pandering to voters. So they always resonate with from a very kind of sincere perspective. And I think a lot of these candidates really do have sincere faith. Um, so it, it is going to be interesting to see how um, just how this all shakes out. But it, when I asked Ralph Reed about, you know, what he's hearing from evangelical leaders across the country and if they are going to show Trump the same support that they've been showing, that they showed him in 2016 and in 2020. And he says that there's very much a lot of momentum from the evangelical community that is still behind Donald Trump. So that it, I think there's a lot of people who are listening to other people. But he does what the what the polls are showing was mm-hmm. was what I saw lining up with these voters, which which frankly was interesting to me because, you know, I, I feel like when I sample people and take the pulse of um, people, I'm talking to D.C. Republicans mm-hmm. or East. And it was interesting um, because from D.C. Republicans I've talked to and, and frankly, even people who worked in President Trump's administration I have felt like what I am hearing from people is that his support was waning a little bit and that Hmm. it maybe wouldn't be as strong as what we saw in 2020 and 2016. But um, from this event, that was not the case. It was very much people who are who are planning and willing and already backing his candidacy. Very interesting. Well, let's uh, switch gears and let's talk about President Biden's run for re-election, which doesn't get a lot of attention because he's not really being opposed. We're going to talk to talk about RFK Jr. here in, in just a second. But his his run for re-election is officially underway, although as the incumbent, it's obviously going to look a lot different from what we are seeing from the Republicans. How does the White House plan to embark on this re-election bid? Well, as you know, John, I have been trying to find a campaign event to cover, <laughs> and it has not been an easy quest. Granted, it is still very early, and it's different because in the GOP, you know, there's like 16 people in there, and with Biden, you know, he is the heir apparent that is mm-hmm. very likely just going to get the nomination, um, and so there's that. But it, it, he every when I get the you know the rundown of his schedule each week, I see a lot of the word the phrase campaign reception, which means that media cannot cover those events, but they, as he travels for official presidential events and is touting different policies, he is hosting a lot of 
campaign receptions, but he is not hosting a lot of campaign events. So mm. as we all remember, he campaigned in 2020, the majority of his campaign he was able to do from his house in Delaware because of COVID. And it, you know, he is, he is older and campaigns are very grueling and very hard even for a, I mean, I, I'm <laughs> a lot younger yes. than our president and I wouldn't want to do it. So it will be interesting to see as, as this really does pick up, particularly, you know, this, this time next year, um, it's going to be interesting to see if he does get out there more often or, um, or if we continue just to see these kind of smaller campaign receptions instead of the larger campaign events. And I think what we saw this week with his trip to Chicago touting Bidenomics is going to be kind of the flavor of what we see mm-hmm. from him over these next few weeks and months, really looking at uh, pushing pushing ahead on certain areas of his policy that are that that poll well, even though his overall numbers on the economy in terms of uh, polling support, uh, approval are, are, are way down. Um, quickly to finish up, RFK Jr. has done surprisingly well in the polls running as a Democrat, although I know a lot of the policies that that he is that he is proposing or pushing or supporting are really generate a lot of support among conservatives. It doesn't look as though there's going to be any debates between these two men. But what effect do you think he will have and is having on the race? This is going to be interesting, and I think it's one that time will tell. And as you know, I'm I'm trying to get out to one of his campaign events because I, the latest number I saw was 20. percent That that's not something to to ignore yeah, that's pretty good that's about what ron DeSantis is getting right now yes yes and so that's when i've kind of I, i've sort of like okay we need to figure out why are people what's attracting them to these events what what's causing this spike in his poll numbers because that that is on you know it, it's not something to ignore as i just said so i think his candidacy we will see but what's interesting is you know we're a lot of democrats Particular, we we historically Democrats tend to be um, more united and kind of get in line with the for the good of the party more so than we see re- with Republicans, and um, and so it is interesting because RFK Jr. wouldn't be a, a a second choice. I think to buy like I think if if anything were if Biden really looks like he's in trouble, I think we would possibly see another person um, who would be more like Biden come into the picture. But we'll can we'll see if he if this 20 percent is his peak or if he's just getting started. But he's not necessarily a candidate that I think would resonate with um, the majority of Democrats. So but I, I do think it's going to he's one worth watching and worth paying attention to and and worth going to figure out you know, why people are getting behind Mm -hmm. him and is it because of his policies or is it because of concern about the current president? And so we'll see. Well, I know you're going to be getting out and uh, hitting the road at some point in the next month or two to kind of cover some of these uh, campaign stops and, and and get out there and get a feel for the, the, the 2024 race. And uh, in the meantime, you can catch all of Abby's fantastic reporting from the White House on Faith Nation, the 700 Club, and all of our other platforms and uh, see all of her stories at CBNNews.com as well. Abigail Robertson, thank you so much for joining me on The Debrief. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. Well, this last weekend, we saw a pretty crazy 36 hours in Russia between President Putin, the Wagner Group, Prigozhin. Uh, it's, it's been the fallout has also been uh, 
a whirlwind as well and so many unanswered questions and joining me to talk a little bit about this is ambassador william courtney he's an adjunct senior fellow at the rand corporation uh he's an expert on russia wagner we're going to talk to him about what's next ambassador thank you for joining me on the debrief how are you you're quite welcome so both Vladimir Putin and Yevgeny Prigozhin have made public comments since the, the hair-raising 36 hours that we all saw uh, last weekend in Russia. And, you know, it looked like Prigozhin was ready to stage a coup, and then he did a real quick 180. Suddenly it was over, and now we're dealing with the fallout. What is your assessment of what happened? He probably did not intend to uh, carry out a coup to depose the Putin uh, government. Uh, what he did uh, pretend to do or intend to do uh, was uh, to uh, have uh, the Minister of Defense, Shoigu, and the Chief of General Staff, Gerasimov, whom Prigozhin had publicly criticized for months on end as being ineffective military leaders, uh, in part because of the military setbacks in Ukraine. And so it seemed like those were the targets. Uh, but his forces came into uh, Rostov-on-Don, uh, uh, where the headquarters of Russia's southern military district was located, and they met no opposition. And they started on the road up, up toward Moscow. So it looked more like a potential coup. I think uh, Pogosian's goals were more limited uh, than that. And when he saw that uh, he really wasn't prepared to go all the way, uh, you know, looked like he was ready to negotiate, and he did. And he got a pretty good result. He got to go to... Belarus and a number of his forces are going there uh, with him. That's a pretty good outcome. In the Russia world, uh, the idea of exiling uh, to Siberia, for example, has a long history. Well, in a sense, he's now exiled to Belarus. So do you believe him when he says that he was staging a protest? Uh, I certainly do believe that uh, he was uh, representing the views of a lot of hardline uh military and uh, other folks who have been pushing Putin to be more aggressive in Ukraine. But Russia's military forces really weren't up to it. They suffered one setback after another, uh, especially at the beginning of the war. They tried to seize the three largest cities, Kiev, Kharkiv, and Odessa. They didn't manage to seize any one of those three. Uh, so I think he really was trying to uh, put some uh, spine, if you will, into the military, uh, and uh, he wasn't really able to accomplish that. So, Prigozhin is now in Belarus, we think. Nobody knows exactly where he is or, or, or what the situation is, but um, he's alive, and he is now a, a Putin, an enemy of Putin and the, and the Russian people, and, and generally speaking, those folks don't live very long, or they they meet some untimely illness. What do you think? What is his future right now? Because he doesn't have his Wagner Group anymore. He's he's not in Ukraine fighting a war. Is he still a threat to Putin? He is a potential threat to Putin, and he's also a potential threat to Alexander Lukashenko, the dictator who rules uh, Belarus. He's probably going to have hundreds, if not a couple thousand, troops with him. Uh, Lukashenko has given him a former military base to operate from. He will probably make money from criminal activities. He'll probably receive some money from governments to keep quiet, from Belarusian or Russian governments to keep quiet. Uh, but he will be a potential threat. Making this more interesting, uh, Vladimir Putin does not like, in fact, hates uh, Alexander Lukashenko. 
Lukashenko has resisted, for example, putting a Russian air base in Belarus. Uh, so it's possible that Putin could even want to use Prigozhin against uh, Lukashenko. That's very interesting because the relationship these two leaders have seemed to have, at least during the start of the Ukraine invasion, was that they were in lockstep with each other. But there's, you're saying there's an animosity that, that is between these two leaders. Uh, yes, and this has been uh, the case for a, a long period of time. Uh, Lukashenko uh, sometimes uh, pretends that he's going to go west, and that irritates Putin. Other times, you know, he's much closer to Putin, but he really doesn't have a choice. He doesn't have an alternative in the West. Uh, there are no Western governments that support him. Uh, so he's had to be a supplicant uh, to Putin. And particularly after large-scale street protests in summer of 2020, which showed how weak uh, support, popular support in Belarus was for Lukashenko, Lukashenko is more dependent on Putin. Putin went on TV and spoke to the Russian people not long after this, early or earlier in the week, and he's trying to project an aura of strength. But in your view, how much weaker is Putin since this incident happened? What is what is his what is his hold on power in Russia look like right now? Uh, it's weaker. Uh, how much is still unclear. Uh, let me cite a parallel. In August 1991, when Mikhail Gorbachev was the president of the Soviet Union. Uh, there was an attempted coup uh, in Moscow against him, but it failed, just as Pogosians has failed. But four months later, Gorbachev was so weakened that he had to resign, and the Soviet Union ceased to exist. A new, more liberal uh, person came to power, Boris Yeltsin, who abolished the Communist Party. So the situation now is one that bears watching over a period of months or maybe a year or two, uh, because Putin's uh, aura of uh, invincibility uh, could uh, uh, suffer more reverses. And how did the Russian people feel about this incident? Because it didn't seem as though, especially as Prigozhin was rolling into Rostov-on-Don, that there was any opposition from the from the people who lived there and, and the Russian citizens. That there there was no, there didn't seem to be an outcry over what was happening. That they were going after their beloved president. Uh, that's correct. And when Prigozhin left uh, Rostov to uh, go on to Belarus, uh, he was cheered by the locals. Uh, people applauded his uh, motorcade, handed him flowers and things like that. Uh, Prigozhin had said uh, hours earlier that the basis used by the Kremlin to justify the war was a lie, that Ukraine and NATO were not about to attack Russia. Uh, so to the extent that more Russians learn about this, and they probably will, uh, there could be further softening of support for Putin and certainly for the war uh, in Ukraine. And there could be uh, some Russian commanders and Russian troops in Ukraine who wonder more about why they're fighting a war based on what were lies. Well, that's the next question, and this deals with Ukraine and Wagner and the fact that Prigozhin is no longer on the battlefield with them. Uh, Putin wants to bring them into the Russian military, but really it was this independent mercenary force that has really seen a lot of the gains made by Russia, the gains that they have made. So what, is, what does this mean for Wagner and Ukraine and Putin's ability to fight this war? 
In recent weeks, Ukrainian forces have been conducting probing attacks to look for soft spots in the Russian uh, defensive line, which uh, Russia has had many months to uh, dig trenches and put obstacles in the way. Uh, it's probably uh, prudent for Ukrainian forces to do some more probing because there may be more weaknesses now as a result of what has taken place. The likelihood of success of Russian uh, forces is diminished in Ukraine and for Ukrainian forces has increased. How much uh, is unclear. We'll probably have to wait and see after the Ukrainians start some of their main thrust uh, efforts in the counteroffensive. Uh, but the terms of trade or what the Russians call a correlation of forces, an amalgam of power and influence, those have moved against Putin and they've moved against Russia. Last question for you here, sir. What does this mean for the Ukraine war in terms of its length? Does this hasten an ending to the war? Does it draw it a little bit closer or are there still just too many unanswered questions to know for sure? Uh, it could draw closer, but you are correct. There are too many unanswered questions to know. Uh, but certainly, the Ukrainians had battlefield momentum before this attempted coup. They probably have more battlefield momentum now. Well, this has been fascinating, and certainly the door is not closed on this story. There's still uh, miles to go with Russia and Wagner and Ukraine. And folks, uh, please make sure that you're you're following everything that Ambassador Courtney is doing with the RAND Corporation. Um, and we hope to have him on again down the road to talk about this subject again. Sir, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. And that brings us to the closer. Mike Pence made a surprise visit to Ukraine this week, where he met with President Volodymyr Zelensky, becoming the first candidate for president to visit Ukraine and meet with Zelensky. Pence has been the first Republican candidate, I should say, because Joe Biden has 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 been to Ukraine and met with Zelensky. Pence has been a staunch supporter of the Ukraine war effort and told NBC News while he was there. I really do believe that if Vladimir Putin and the Russian military were able to overrun Ukraine, it wouldn't be too long before they crossed a border where our men and women in uniform would be required to go and fight. And frankly, the second half of the 21st century could look an awful lot more like the first half of the 20th century. According to a recent Pew Research poll that came out, this was two weeks ago, 44% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents say the United States is giving too much aid to Ukraine. That's up a little bit since January, when it was 40%. It's the highest level since shortly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. Just 14% of Democrats and Democratic leaners view the current level of U.S. aid as excessive. And that, that number has not moved all that much. In March of last year, Republicans were only four percentage points more likely than Democrats to say the U.S. is providing too much aid to Ukraine. It was 9% as opposed to 44% now. So Republicans now are 30 points more likely to say the U.S. is giving Ukraine too much aid. 9% a year ago to 44% now. And that will do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Please make sure to tell a friend or family member about the podcast. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating and a review to let me know what you think about the show. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And we will talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief. Debrief.